Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Hello, everybody, and as always, thank you so much for listening in. So you know, show notes and resources for this episode can be found at waldorfy.com forward slash eighth grade. In this episode, I'm speaking with Waldorf teacher Simone Sherney all about eighth grade and the eighth grader. As this episode is a kind of culmination of the whole of season five, we'll also be touching on some of Simone's experience teaching the other grades as well, with a special focus on how she's expanded on the traditional Waldorf canon. An extra special thanks to our seasoned podcast supporter, Palumba. To check out Palumba's incredible selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies, check out their website, palumba.com. That's P-A-L-U-M-B-A.com. Now, let me introduce you to Simone. Simone Cherney is an alumna and class teacher at the Detroit Waldorf School. She is entering her 10th year of teaching at the school and has enjoyed every moment of her work with the children. Her first class was a combined middle school class. Those young people are college students now. Her current class is rising to the fifth grade. Simone received her Waldorf Elementary Grades teacher certification from the Waldorf Institute of Southeastern Michigan in 2014. She has a BA in sociology from the University of Michigan and a master's degree in educational policy from the University of Pennsylvania. She has served for two years as an instructor for the teacher training program at the Great Lakes Waldorf Institute in Wisconsin and adjunct professor at Mount Mary University. Hello, Simone, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited about this conversation about the eighth grade because, of course, eighth grade is the culmination of the eight years of Waldorf education that a young person experiences through the grade school years. And I feel our conversation is just going to be the perfect culmination of the conversations that I've had so far this season. There is something that I want to, we've touched on it already this season, but that I just kind of want to bring to front of mind for you listeners that I think is going to be relevant, especially for this conversation, is that you know, when we talk about quote unquote Waldorf or things like what Steiner said, you know, what Steiner said, these were indications that he gave. And at the end of the day, I think, and I've had so many conversations like this or about this with other teachers for other topics as well. Ultimately, the teacher is the artist and how the teacher brings what the students, young people need forward into the classroom for the world that they're going to need to meet when they leave eighth grade, when they leave high school is ultimately, you know, up to the teachers and their, what they kind of see in front of them. And that has come up so many times with teachers and conversations in the season and even others as well. Um, and I'm looking forward to where our conversation, Simone, goes and and how you've expanded in your classroom on, you know, what we call the traditional Waldorf canon. So I'm so excited to have you, as I mentioned. We'll get right started with my first question for you, which is what you see the needs, the developmental needs of the eighth grader that 13-year-old, 14-year-old are in the classroom. Thank you so much, Ashley. And I just want to express my appreciation for this opportunity. In terms of the developmental picture of the eighth grader, I would say that they are really at a point in their life where they are longing for a connection to the world that feels real and meaningful so that they have plenty of opportunities to take their own initiative 
and to explore new and relevant topics in a way that's different from the other seven years in the, in the grade school journey. So with puberty, there awakens in the young child an all-embracing love for the world and for humanity. And the teacher has to work really hard to cultivate that. I would also say that the students are really looking to find their place uh, within the context of the world and humanity. Yes. And of course, it's the beginning. We've talked about this a little bit in the seventh grade episode. It's the beginning of the the teenage journey, which I feel like is a little, can be a little tumultuous kind of, but it's not a traditional like change year, like nine year change or 12 year change. And I don't know if you, you were a Waldorf alumna as well, if you experienced this in the eighth grade year, that there's like this confidence that comes too with this age group. Have you, you know, felt that yourself or seen it as a teacher? Yeah, I think so. I think when I was a student myself, I had this perception that going to a public school and having a traditional school experience was really what I wanted and what would be right for me. So I was really holding that in eighth grade. And then I did attend a public high school and found very quickly um, just that it seemed the educational experience lacked the kind of depth that I was looking for and that I was used to. So that's kind of why in all of my experiences, I decided to come back. But yes, I'm able to see that in my students too. I feel that um, they're really starting to show their own interests, starting to show their own passions. So they just like to take their own initiative and explore things on their own. This is a time where they can show a lot of interest in politics uh, and current events. So I've tried to bring that forward too in my curriculum as well. Yeah, I remember our teacher did something that we had never done anything like this before until our eighth grade year. There was one little I guess it was not like the regular main lesson, but during the day, a little chunk of the day where we would make a a circle with our desks and one person would present like a research project or research paper on a like current event topic. And the teacher then would kind of elicit discussion around that topic. And that just felt so exciting to have like a roundtable discussion in such an adult way, like kind of facilitated by obviously our adult teacher. Um, and really felt they, the teacher felt that we could be kind of responsible enough to have such like a grown up conversation around a, an event like that. It felt really cool and exciting and was a really huge memory for me of that eighth grade year. Mm-hmm. So that being said, what are the traditional, I'll say, uh, blocks within that eighth grade curriculum? And of course, you're a trained Waldorf teacher. Why are those blocks presented? And then, of course, we'll get into, you know, how you've expanded on those. Sure. So some of the traditional blocks, specifically in history and social studies, are world history, the 1700s through the present, American history, lives of outstanding biographical individuals, I would say revolutions in the world, modern history, biography, and any kind of historical literature that you can expose them to. So I would say that this meets the eighth grade child because this whole idea of initiative and sense of purpose that comes with revolution, it shows them that there is the possibility for transformation 
Um, and that humanity is really in a state of evolution at all times. So I feel the different stories, the different biographies that come through are helpful for them in supporting them through their development. Some of the other traditional blocks that come in other subjects are the study of Shakespeare and literature traditionally, and math, geometry, and algebra, and in science, chemistry, physiology, and physics. We kind of touched a little bit on this in the episode on seventh grade, and you can just maybe speak to what your school does. Sure. In my uh, eight years of Waldorf education, I only attended grade one through eight. There was no sexual education, and I'm wondering if your school does that or, um, you know, that's not what we point where we were talking about in our seventh grade episode is that's not part of anatomy and physiology. Um, and that's of alum criticisms of curriculum. That's like one of the things that I feel like has come up when I've talked to uh, alums before. Do you know, does your school, does your school have that curriculum at all? Yeah. So, I mean, I've had this, I've had this question come up among parents, even as I took a class in the early grades, you know, when does sexual education come? And I feel like I had to be very frank and transparent and say that really in physiology and anatomy, we're just talking about reproduction. We're not talking about sexual education. And that was, you know, something that I wanted to bring differently this time around. With my last class in middle school, uh, we continue to work with a therapist and sexual education and sort of sexual identity expert. Her name is Heidi Sproul. And she comes in and she works with grades five through eight. And she talks to them about their own sexual development things like consent and being able to defend yourself if necessary. So when she came to speak to my combined seventh and eighth grade class, I feel like this will just give you a picture of what the experience is like. We were talking about, you know, we really had a conversation and dialogue about how important love and trust is. Um, in our relationships. And when we have sexual relationships with people, that's really an important piece and something that um, can help the relationship to be more substantial and meaningful. So there was one child in the group who raised his hand and he said, yeah, so if I, if I decide that I want to have a close relationship with someone and actually have sex with them, how do I know if there's already a baby in there or not. <laughs> and Heidi just looked at him and said, well, there isn't a way to know. You can't simply look down there and see if there's a baby in there. But this is really where that level of trust and communication happens uh, so that young couples can feel free to sort of express themselves, to communicate their needs to their partners, and to make sure that uh, later there aren't any surprises that are unexpected. <laughs> yes. And this is, I feel like, a good segue into expanding on traditional curriculum because obviously Steiner didn't give indications, I'm sure, on sexual education for, you know, the 13, 14-year-olds. And coming back to Waldorf education, you know, meeting the needs of these young people and preparing them for the world that they're going to enter. Obviously, that's becoming important. And 
it's great to hear that that's becoming a part of, you know, your school and what, you know, you're offering there. So what are, what are other ways that you've expanded on the traditional curriculum blocks? I'm specifically thinking of the history and social studies. Mm-hmm. And why did you see those, did, you know, did you see the holes that were there somehow and not meeting your students? And basically, what was the spark to bring those things that you bring that are outside of that traditional, quote unquote, you know, Waldorf canon? I think the spark was really my own experience as a Waldorf student and just really feeling in my adolescent consciousness that things were missing or there was just a lack of presence um, in terms of diverse perspectives and experiences. So even from the time that I was a Waldorf student in middle school, I I am so thankful that my teacher allowed me the freedom to just do my own exploration and to um, include pages in my main lesson book that I thought were important. So I have this specific memory of like this illustration and poem of Harriet Tubman in our Civil War block that would not have been there had it not been for my own initiative. So as a teacher, I really came back just trying to keep myself open to what wasn't in the traditional canon and how I could bring that in an age-appropriate way to my students. So one thing that I just want to say kind of generally is that Warner Glass outlines just like some general questions and indications for making changes to the curriculum. And one thing that he says is that the content material is so wide. There are so many potential subjects that you can bring that it's really hard to kind of scale things down and really have a clear direction um, in your instruction. So some things that we can consider are, is the topic of interest that we're considering of local interest or is there some global relevance that we can bring forward? Also, does this topic contribute to a better understanding of the historical forces at work around these adolescent students? And will the history lessons answer questions that live in the soul of adolescent persons? So then we can kind of draw forward some themes. So we might want to address matters pertaining to war and peace, changes in the political life of younger and older nations, cultural and scientific achievements and their impact on our age, and the nature of law and the study of major constitutional systems. So one place where I really think there is room to expand the curriculum is in the study of revolutions. Typically in eighth grade, we would have the study of the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution, but there's so much more space available to us. So I had a combined seventh and eighth grade class, and then I had a standalone eighth grade class that was very small. Um, But to begin, I, in this revolution block, I just asked them to think for a moment, what are some qualities of a revolution or a dramatic change or shift in humanity? What are some words that they would use to describe that? And on their own, some of the things that they came up with were ambition, bravery, charisma, 
commitment, concern for the greater good, humility, innovation, integrity, intelligence, passion, progressive thinking, and selflessness. Also, from the beginning of the year, I assigned each of them a revolutionary quote from a revolutionary speaker that they would recite once a week on the day that they were born. So some of those revolutionary thinkers that I assigned were Dr. Cornell West, Asada Shakur, Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony, Ida B. Wells, and W.E.B. Du Bois. So just that they are getting a sense. How are these people talking about these issues? What are their interests? And what do they think the direction needs to be for meaningful change? So in addition to the Industrial Revolution, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, some places that I might go are the Haitian Revolution, which is the largest slave uprising in all of history, uh, the Chinese Revolution, the Russian Revolution. Through the biographies of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, we looked at the Cuban Revolution, and then later the Chicano movement. So I feel like just looking at revolutions in many different places of the world and bringing them together to kind of highlight some key and major themes is really important. There, I just had a quick question about that in your opinion. This has come up a couple of times or this language has come up a couple of times in the show and especially in this season is one of the things I hear kind of thrown around a lot is reflecting back like what you see in terms of in front of you with the students. So I've described before, like I live in an area that's not very diverse. And, and as a child, when I was in, you know, Waldorf school, all the kids in the class were essentially white and of European descent. And that traditional Waldorf canon, which, um, you know, goes through mostly kind of like European history, like we never studied things like the Chinese Revolution, feel like the Russian Revolution maybe came out. But anyways, right. I feel that it's it's still important, even though you don't see that student or that young person whose uh, you know, ancestral history is tied to any of these places to expand into those as well, even for those students where you don't see that as part of their like ancestral history. And do you agree and you know, how can we kind of talk about that importance, I guess, is I always wonder like how to exp how to express that kind of that it's not just the students in front of you. It's like the way I see it, it's and I see kind of through my own experience as a young person and not being as exposed to these things to the traditional curriculum is I had a much more narrow viewpoint when I entered the world, you know, after eighth grade and then as an adult. Yeah. So what I think I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. And I think that living in a community where people are in a certain sense, very much the same or have the same cultural experience, it is all the more important that they have a wider, more diverse picture of the world presented to them for just that reason that you gave. I think the indication that children really need to find their place in the world, I don't know that that can be done to the degree or to the level that we would like 
if the curriculum is only centered on, like you said, the identities that come through in the children's biographies in front of us. So if we allow people in front of us to limit the scope of our curriculum, then yeah, in a way that creates some limits or barriers in their ability to understand different perspectives later in life. So I definitely agree with what you said. Just based on kind of what you said, um, I can talk a little bit more about how I tried to transform like the modern history curriculum and tried to focus on events that were happening specifically at that time and that were relevant to my students. Yes, that's perfect. Yeah. So the second time I taught eighth grade was this small standalone class. I had them from the end of 2016 until summer of 2017. So our modern history block was scheduled to begin two days after this legendary women's march on Washington on January 21st, 2017. So it seemed, even though I hadn't intended, you know, to begin this block with women's suffrage, with women's rights issues, it was wholly appropriate, I thought, to do so. And so we transitioned into the biography of Susan B. Anthony and really took a close look at the women's suffrage movement. So then we were able to move on to stories of immigration and the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. My school is relatively diverse, I'd say. So I do have quite a few students that have these ties to immigration and have family members that were born in other countries. We talked about the biographies of Winston Churchill and Eleanor Roosevelt. But then I really tried to shift the focus to, you know, we spoke before about revolutions. But I also wanted to spend a great deal of time and help the students to understand the many social movements that have happened over time. So we looked at, well, to start with current events, I talked about the biography of Nelson Mandela in apartheid in South Africa, and also the race riots in Detroit kind of as a way to contextualize um, the Black Lives Matter movement that came forward at this time. Um, So other social movements, abolitionism, women's suffrage, the civil rights movement, I focus mostly on segregation and desegregation because like you said about the children's experience in front of us, like to really help them to understand that the group that we have, you know, our students, our peers, our friends would not be possible just a very short time ago. We couldn't have this diverse group of people in one room because of segregation. We also talked about the Black Power Movement, the Pan-African Movement. I've already mentioned the Chicano Movement. And this time around, I'd really like to do more with gender identity and the L. GBTQI movement. Yeah, this is so, I'm loving this discussion so much because it feels like all of the things I was kind of curious about and would have loved to see presented in my own eighth grade curriculum. Uh, Eighth grade is a year for a lot of Waldorf students. It's a transition 
from, I can say this to you as a Waldorf alumna, because you experienced it too, you know, a fairly like sheltered, like that's kind of this, there's this nature of Waldorf education that these children are very sheltered, like in their earlier years. And then they're, you know, as they're exposed to more history and stories and like an expanded view of what's happened in the world and in their history, um, eighth grade, you know, and getting into current events, it's, it's this kind of opening up to like, now, how is this appearing in front of us right now. And then that's part of preparing them for the next, you know, transition to high school. And some Waldorf schools have high schools. I'm not sure about your school in Detroit, but um, our school here in uh, New Hampshire, we have our high school right across the street from uh, our grade school. And I didn't go to a Waldorf high school. My husband did. My husband went, you know, K through eight, but I went into a, uh, another independent school and, a lot of parents ask me, what is the transition like for eighth graders? A lot of schools around the world, around the country, end at eighth grade in the school, in the area, there's not a Waldorf High School, or for whatever reason, uh, parents, cares decide that it's a you know, better and students, you know, for themselves, that it's better to enter a traditional public school system or homeschooling or another independent school. So I'm wondering if you can, you talked a little bit about your own personal transition into high school. Um, and then maybe you can speak from the teacher's perspective. How do you prepare your students for that transition into the ninth grade, wherever it may be? Yeah. So I think one angle <laughs> that I can use to answer this question is to talk about something that came as a tradition after I left the Detroit Waldorf School. Um, my brother is three years younger than I am. And uh, in his eighth grade year, he had the opportunity to uh, work on an eighth grade project. And so when I came back as a teacher, both of my eighth grade classes did this as well. And it's really this opportunity to explore a topic of interest to them. So I had someone work on DJing. I had someone work on piano performance, where she actually composed her own song. I had a similar project with another student who wrote his own jazz guitar composition, things like animated movies and fashion design and all of these different ways of exploring different topics that don't necessarily come as part of the curriculum. So I'm saying all of that to say that I think what's really important is what we're working toward is helping students learn how to learn so that no matter what educational environment they go into, they have a sense of their own strengths they're aware of some weaknesses and some things that they need to work on and strengthen. Um, and they, they feel a strong connection and have an appreciation for their own unique learning style. So what I think is that the transition can be very challenging. And a lot of that depends on the social circle the kind of teachers that they then encounter, and really their own level of confidence and comfort with themselves. So someone who feels more grounded in, their, in themselves is going to kind of move forward with a different gesture than somebody 
who isn't as confident. So I think it's really our job as teachers to not even bring all of like the material that we expect them to learn or like prepare them kind of piece by piece with the curriculum material, but that in a general sense, we want to continue to cultivate this love for learning. So that again, that can transform in their in the next stage of their development. I think another challenge that teachers are really faced with, or yeah, we, we have a high school that's about 45 minutes away from our grade school. And so I didn't have a lot of students going to the Rudolf Steiner School of Ann Arbor, but a challenge that teachers face in eighth grade, I think, is just that we are trying to prepare students for a number of different educational environments and communities. So each of our students will really experience something different, which means that they need something different. Uh, And that's a challenge for the teacher to meet all of those things. But again, just in this general sense, are they interested in learning? Can they pursue their own interests in a meaningful way? Can they develop a connection with a mentor? I think all of those things are really important and help uh, to strengthen that transition in their experience at that time. Because we're talking about eighth grade, and this is the culmination of this season of episodes uh, for me, for the podcast, talking about each grade individually, I'm wondering if you can reflect back on some curriculum, some topics from other grades as well. I'm specifically thinking of conversation uh, that you and I had speaking about second grade and the saints curriculum and how you've expanded on that. So uh, I was so jazzed about that conversation. Simone, I have to tell you, I like went down to like my husband. I was like, I just had this amazing (laughs) conversation with Simone. And like, you know, he's obviously familiar with the curriculum too, because he experienced it. So I was like, I I got to bring this up when we talk, uh, you know, for the episode. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how you've expanded on that curriculum in second grade um, and then, you know, maybe some other highlights for you where you've expanded on uh, curriculum and other in other grades, perhaps. Sure. I would love to. So to describe my work with the Saints and Noble People's curriculum in second grade, I really have to talk about the experience that sparked my work or my desire to change the curriculum in that grade. I went to a second grade intensive, uh, which is a common thing for teachers to do as they're preparing to teach a new grade in the fall. They go to a summer intensive that's specifically designed for that grade. So I attended one of those sessions and we were having, you know, many conversations about this part of the curriculum. And our instructor was kind of offering a list of alternative people that we could bring as part of the Saints and Noble People's curriculum. So traditionally, the focus is really on Catholic saints and Christian heroes. But then in this intensive, our conversation turned to the possibility of humanitarians, activists, politicians. And some of the people that came up were like Martin Luther King Jr., Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, Gandhi, and many, many, many others. We had a long list. Um, And there was a colleague who said, you know, this is all well and good, uh, but we can't really consider 
these people to be saints in the way that we mean when we talk about the Catholic saints, because there's this quality of a miracle that occurs or like some mystical mystery that almost cannot be explained kind of thing. And so she was feeling like the people that I just listed were not accomplishing that in the same way. She also said that she felt like teaching about political activists or humanitarians or change agents would politicize the children. And that was not the purpose of this curriculum. So the experience of hearing a person say that this is how I took it. I'm not sure that this is what she intended, but it sparked my whole initiative to change the curriculum. You know, I listened to what she said and what I took away from that was her saying that what Harriet Tubman did in leading her people to freedom was not a miracle. And I had a real problem with that. <laughs> and so the way that I went about it, which I think is really important for people to understand, is that when I came back to school in the fall and I had my first parent meeting, I really took a lot of time to describe that experience to my class parents and to help them to understand why I felt like Harriet Tubman's deeds were a true example of a miracle and what I thought a miracle was. And also that I wanted their children to experience the idea of a miracle outside of like traditional religious convention. And again, this goes back actually to your point about expanding perceptions. I mean, imagine a child who grows up in a space who feels like, no, what the Catholic saints did, that's a miracle, you know, but their minds are not open to understanding a miracle in a different sense. Totally. You know? I mean, like I, like I said, I was like, when that, that whole line of thinking in your experience, I was just so jazzed to go like share that with my husband husband and say, wow, like this is what Waldorf can be. Like this is where this expansion can go. Like this is Waldorf in the 21st century. And I was I was like, you know, so excited. I was saying, okay, Simone is amazing. Like I hope she writes a book about all this. Like this is the coolest conversation that I've had. And I know a lot of listeners, like I get emails or DMs, you know, we have conversations about kind of how to expand and that's why I get so excited to talk to you about how you've done it. And with such grace, it seems, you know, like you seem just, I, I love the way that you present how you have expanded on these different things, partly coming from your personal experience too, because you went to Waldorf school. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just got so excited. So <laughs> where are some other areas, where else have you kind of expanded or, or seen a need to be met and you kind of went there? Yeah. So if I could just mention one more thing about the saints, I actually didn't even bring Harriet Tubman in second grade, and that was because I'd already taught eighth grade. Uh, but my children really did enjoy the story of Sojourner Truth in second grade. And then I just wanted to make the point that one thing that I really wanted to do that I didn't feel like I was able to accomplish to the degree that I would like is to bring 
stories of children that we might consider saints. So I did bring the story of Ruby Bridges, of Malala Yousafzai. And when I had my chalkboard drawing of Ruby Bridges up, of her, you know, on the steps, coming out of the school building with the National Guard, a little boy just looked up and he said, oh my goodness, she's so cute. And it's like, yes, can you imagine this cute little girl having to do this work for us and having to create this change in this really difficult way? Uh, so I just thought that that was beautiful, but I just wanna make the point that if I could have more examples of children doing this work, um, I would really appreciate that and think that my students could benefit from that a great deal. Another right, place- Right, because, yeah. sorry to jump in, because part of that like age and development, right? It's that like empathy and connection, like they're feeling life. So when yeah. they see themselves in the young person doing these saintly things, mm -hmm. um, these incredible acts for humanity, they see themselves in that, you know, sparks their, their feeling, like their empathy, their, you know, understanding through their feelings, I'm assuming. Yes. So I just, <laughs> I just think that that's really important and something that I would really still strive for if I could do it again. Another place where I work to make some significant change is in the fourth grade curriculum, which I just finished uh, the fourth grade year with my class. And part of what sparked my interest in making some changes in this area is just that the indication for the narrative content in this year is that we bring stories epic stories that include, he says, a multiplicity of personalities contributing to the social whole or the well-being of, of humanity, I guess. So the idea that individuals can work collectively to make positive change. And what I've seen in my experience, in my own experience, and kind of just generally in the way things have occurred in my school is that really the way to bring that forward is through Norse myths. And I can remember being a fourth grader and hearing the Norse myths and loving them, feeling like I had a strong connection to them, even though these are European stories. I remember coming home from school one day and asking my dad, like, if he knew who Odin was and what he did. Both of my parents are physicians, and my dad looked at me and he's like, nope, never heard of it. And I'm just like, how, what? You haven't heard of it? Like, this is so important. And I was just like flabbergasted at the idea that people would not know about the Norse myths. So... That was really the focus in my fourth grade experience. And I hadn't heard about a lot of diverse ways of bringing this indication. I kind of stumbled upon the story of Sundiata, the Lion King of Mali. And this is a West African story about a prince. He's disabled. He cannot walk until he's seven years old. Then his mother is so upset and so ashamed that he is not able-bodied and that he's supposed to be king, that she is crying and she is 
furious with him. And Sanjiata sa says, you know, oh, mother, why are you so upset? And when he understands and discovers that it's because he can't walk and that it's like he's this weakling, he says, oh, you're upset because I can't walk? Well, I'm going to walk today. And he walks. <laughs> and then he grows up and um, unites the 12 ancient kingdoms of Africa. Okay. So there are many reasons why I felt that this story would be relevant and in fact, more meaningful than the Norse myths. And I just want to say that I didn't get rid of the Norse myths, but I did focus on Sundiata and I brought the storytelling content kind of from four different directions in this year. So I told Sundiata, I told the Norse myths, I told Polynesian mythology, stories from Hawaii, and also Native American mythology. So yeah, reasons why I thought Sundiata was relevant is just we were doing in-person learning after a pandemic. And just the idea of everybody working toward the collective good, I thought was really important because we're all doing things that are vastly different from our previous experience so that we can be in person to have school outside during this unusual and challenging year. So just this idea of overcoming barriers and making a conscious decision that like today, I'm gonna do something different for the greater good. I also have a number of children with learning differences, challenges that they face in their development. So I thought this picture of Sundiata just making this decision that he was gonna walk on any given day <laughs> through his own initiative would be a really powerful image for them to hold on to. And also just that, yeah, I would have to get in more into like all of the characters that come forward, but just all of these unexpected personalities, I'd say, coming together to support Sundiata, to carry him on his journey so that he was able to accomplish these things on his own, I thought was really important. It was a beautiful experience and we, we performed the story as our fourth grade class play and our outdoor shelter on a beautiful sunny day in late March. Wow, that sounds so incredible. I um, I mean, I would love to get more into the details of that story sometime. And mm -hmm. it, it sounds really amazing. I do have another question for you. Um, and it's something that I hear again, a lot from parents, carers, and even teachers in Waldorf communities. And this kind of comes back to what I said right at the beginning of this episode, which is uh, that Steiner gave indications on what he would recommend for different ages based on his view of human development and how, you know, we've had this entire conversation now about expanding on that, essentially. I hear a lot that teachers within Waldorf communities run into, uh, I guess, resistance in the effort to expand curriculum into these, you know, other stories that they find relevant or other topics that they find relevant to bring to their students. So there's that, I guess, resistance from parents and, you know, 
whole school maybe, but then also parents who feel the teachers could be expanding more to give uh, a broader perspective through history and stories and different uh, grades and ages. I'm wondering if you can give any like words of advice to the teachers or, you know, or how you've gone about it, you know, in uh, presenting to the parents of your class or your school, like, hey, this is what I'm going to do. And this is how I'm going to make it work. And this is why it's relevant for this age and for this group that I'm teaching. Yeah. So again, as I described in just this short moment that I'm talking about second grade, I feel like being open and honest and transparent with the parents uh, is critical. And had I not described this experience that happened at my second grade intensive, but then just went ahead and changed the curriculum, I can imagine that there would have been some questions from everyone. I feel very privileged to work in a school community where these ideas and kind of initiatives are really respected and valued. So I don't get a lot of resistance. And when I do, I feel like I'm just able to hold my ground because it comes from personal experience that I'm making these changes. And I also just really get tired of hearing that, you know, Waldorf schools and the curriculum are Eurocentric. And I would just like to at least be some kind of force in in changing that and making that not the case so often. Um, something else that I wanted to mention is that when you go out on a limb and the children have a very positive response, it is very affirming. And at least in my experience, helps me to feel that uh, I'm doing the right thing. So the truth is that with something like Norse mythology, I mean, at this time, <laughs> the large majority of my class knew those stories from movies or whatever, because these popular Eurocentric stories become part of mainstream culture through the media. So they had really already experienced that in a number of ways. Uh, so bringing Sundiata was really something new. They hadn't experienced that. Nobody knew this story. And the children, their love for Sundiata was just amazing. So they're going home. They're telling their parents about these stories. And like I said, I probably spent the most time on Sundiata and told it in the greatest detail. And when I was done, the children were actually sad, kind of grieving, you know, the end of this story and this point in time. Uh, so that is really affirming for me. And I would just say again, in terms of looking at the children before you and looking at their reactions and responses is also really critical and can kind of be a sounding board for the teacher. Just to get back to eighth grade, I, in the same way that I was open and honest with parents in second grade, I was also very open and honest with my students in eighth grade. And when I was coming to difficult topics, you know, especially about slavery, you know, and those kinds of injustices, I just, I told them very plainly that this was information that I felt was kind of kept from me because people wanted to protect me and, um, on our childhood, 
but that later in life, I resented that protection. And I wish that people would have just been honest with me and given me a clear picture so that I'm not kind of unlearning things. So I just spoke very plainly with my students in preparation for these topics. And again, the child's response, their reaction is, at least in my experience, was thank you, Ms. Sherney, from the bottom of my heart that you are just honest with me. And it doesn't mean that you have to, I wouldn't say that the goal is to shock them or to present them with information that's really going to kind of like disrupt their inner being in a violent way. So I was still very careful to craft the story so that they were age appropriate and still could meet them at their stage of development. But to just be honest that I wanted to lay it all out there for them and then they can kind of decide their own way forward. So I just wanted to mention that too. Yes. Well, that actually kind of brings me to my last question for you, which again is kind of looking broad, more broadly at the curriculum and, and taking into consideration the different developmental stages that the young person goes through as they come into first grade, we'll say, and all the way through the, the eighth grade. And you brought up your own personal experience that you felt like some of these important truths were withheld from you. And I brought up earlier my personal experience that I felt entire, you know, stories, cultures, like especially at the eighth grade, you know, there was like a big hole of things that were not part of my ancestral background, not even close that were not presented to me that, you know, I got some of that in high school, but I, I would have, I really would have loved to see it presented in my Waldorf curriculum. I, and I really agree. You and I had a conversation previous to this one where you brought forward that part of the developmental needs that these 13, 14 year old eighth graders have is like this, like craving for truth. Like they just want like the truth, you know, and I totally remember that um, being an eighth grader. And that's one of the reasons why earlier I brought up how my teacher uh, had us present these different current event topics that then we would discuss as a group. It's like the teacher was saying, hey, you guys, eighth graders, like, I know you can handle the truth about these current events and we can discuss them like grownups like that. And that was one of my biggest or best memories of eighth grade. So you know, talking about that importance in eighth grade and, and the ha- that need for kind of truth for that stage developmentally. I'm wondering if you can speak to how you feel about the earlier grades really being like this little kind of sheltered, like bubble. I didn't go to kindergarten at a Waldorf school, but I appreciate that there's this like acknowledgement that there are ideas or things that are presented maybe in their full intensity later mm-hmm. um, verse not at or not at all, which I don't think is the right answer either. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm wondering if you can, I don't know, I guess just speak to your perhaps personal experience if you did appreciate that kind of like sheltering, if you will. Yeah. So I think that in my response, you have to take into account my unique biography um, or I guess kind of experience that maybe isn't as common, especially where you're from, Ashley. So I will just say, you know, as a Black child in a Waldorf school, these things will come up for me very early. And if the culture and the curriculum is kind of limited, that is something that I am going to feel or that I felt 
as a very young child. Um, so I came to Waldorf in the second grade and stayed until eighth. So yes, I think that this protection of childhood is very important. I think that we should honor that. I think that um, it allows the child to come into themselves in their own unique way before kind of exploring these intense topics later in life. You know, it allows them to uh, the chance to develop a different kind of foundation and kind of working with those issues later. Uh, from my experience as a teacher, again, I go back to second grade and I think about I think about when I was teaching Desmond Tutu and the segregation that he experienced. And I tried to kind of bring that in a very age appropriate way. And what I was surprised to find was that the children in my class were kind of already aware or already knew that like, I didn't need to tell them that segregation <laughs> was not okay. You know what I'm saying? So the way that I brought it and setting up the story of Desmond Tutu was like, oh my goodness, you see how we're all here together in this classroom all together and we all look different and we all come from different parts of the community and have different families. When Desmond Tutu was going to school, that was not possible. And he was black and he only could go to school with black children. And the black schools only had certain resources. And that was very different from what the white children experienced. And they were like, oh no, Miss Shirley, that is so wrong. You know, so I was just kind of describing it to them. I wasn't placing a judgment on it or kind of bringing my own <laughs> opinion but they were very much already there. So I do think that we have to take that into consideration when we look at the children before us in this time and place, what is their experience already? So I wouldn't want there to be a situation where we're trying to protect and preserve childhood for children who have already, or who already have a certain awareness or experience, especially in diverse classrooms where people are going to experience life differently based on their identity. So I think that's important. And I can give another example too, just from my fourth grade year, where I was teaching local geography and we talked about how the size of a city is really determined by population. And so we looked at the city of Detroit and the surrounding suburbs and we kind of were making charts to put in our main lesson book. And somebody, a child noticed, this child lives in Ham Hamtramck, which is a small uh, city. And uh, the child noticed that one of the suburbs, Bloomfield Hills, had a larger square mileage or area than Hamtramck, where he lived. But Hamtramck had significantly more people. And she was like, Miss Shirley, why is that? Why do they have more space if they have so few people? You know? And so, like, these questions are coming up about resources and infrastructure and, you know, suburban life versus city life and the distribution of resources and those kinds of things. 
So all I was doing was simply making a chart <laughs> and we were looking at population and the area of certain cities. But again, he was living with this question or at least his examination of the data uh, brought about this question in a really mature uh, and important way. So I think that's how I would answer the question. Yeah. I mean, what I felt from my personal experience, and now I have two little kids and I think of that sweet like Waldorf bubble, you know, that comes the early childhood years through like second and fourth grade, the area that we live in and the world that my, the very globalized world that they're going to go into and they're going to meet, you know, at the end of their educational journey. And what a great responsibility it is as parents, carers and teachers to prepare them for that world. And kind of what I see or recognize did not happen from either my parents and for many, obviously, white kids at the time and and school is that you, you described it just now that the children are so smart. They recognize what they see in the world. And it's so important to acknowledge what they see and what they witness and you know, to participate in their increasing understanding of the world and the differences and the things that they see is you know, so needed. And that's kind of what you just described, basically. So that was very cool, too. I have so loved this conversation. Is there anything that you kind of want to add before we wrap up? Oh, I was just going to make the joke that I wish you could see how strongly I'm nodding my head right now (laughs) as you're speaking. Uh, So I just totally agree. And I really appreciate this opportunity and your interest in my work. And I will just say that um, the whole experience about the Saints curriculum and just my work in that area, I did try to outline and describe in a recent article um, in Renewal Magazine or School Renewal, it's now called. Uh, So I just wanted to mention that. Thank you again, Ashley. Of course. And you did describe to me earlier a Facebook uh, group or project that you are working on. I feel like you maybe started it in the pandemic. I'm forgetting the details, but do you want to share that with the audience as well? Because that's kind of another place where they can connect with you and the work that you're doing. Oh, sure. That is on my personal Facebook page. I decided to do a series uh, that was called Dedication to Black History during Black History Month. And because February is the shortest month of the year, I decided to do 32 entries. So that took us four days past the end of the month. Uh, But really the point was we had some questions just this year about how we handle Black history, uh, how we handle culturally responsive teaching. And that was my personal way of just saying this is Black History Month and I want to honor it. But these examples, these posts are things that the work that I do and take up all year. Um, So that was really my point. So you can just look me up, Simone Sherney on Facebook, and uh, you'll be able to see the series. Now it's (laughs) July, so you'll have to go all the way back to February, but I'm sure you'll be able to find it pretty easily. Yes. And I can probably link to that on the show notes and resources page for this episode as well. So yeah, well, I said it earlier in the episode, Simone, I'm just going to throw it out there again, that if there is a Simone book about Waldorf and your experience and your (laughs) views, I'm going to be the first one. So 
I'm just telling you that right now. I'm so excited about the work you're doing and everything that you, um, you know, shared here. So thank you. Thank you again for speaking with me. Thank you so, so much. I think most of you know by now how much I truly love all things Waldorf. What can I say? It's what I was fortunate enough to get to experience as a child, and now I'm so enjoying learning more about all of it with you listeners as an adult. You know the Waldorf goodies are beautiful, but where do you find that quality selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies? Well, you needn't look any further than Palumba. Palumba, loosely meaning wooden dove, was formed in 2007 to fill the need for the desire to have safe, high-quality, all-natural toys made in the U.S., Palumba's selection of products are carefully chosen to ensure that they're made of wood, wool, silk, and cotton, along with other natural materials. Palumba is also the only retailer that features the complete Camden Rose line. Camden Rose's commitment to durability, beauty, natural, and renewable materials make them the American leader in eco-friendly natural toy and children's furniture design. A handful of items come from a women's cooperative in Peru, while the majority of items are made in the U.S., at Palumba, they believe that imaginative, open-ended play with simple toys crafted from beautiful, natural materials offers children warmth and a sense of well-being when discovering their world. If you've listened to this show before or follow on social media, you know that Palumba is my favorite place to get all the quality Waldorf things. I would so love for you to check them out. You can shop their selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies at their website, palumba.com. That's P-A-L-U-M-B-A.com. Thank you all again for listening in. Know that the show notes and resources page for this episode can be found at waldorfie.com forward slash eighth grade. A super special thanks to all of our generous Waldorfy Patreon supporters. My objective with this podcast has always been to provide an accessible, free resource for those interested in Waldorf education and anthroposophy, but free doesn't pay the bills. It's thanks to the help of our lovely supporters that I can keep running this show. And I am so excited for what's coming up for Patreon supporters in September. Yes, I do mean bonus content is coming, and I'm going to be sharing more of the details about that content coming up in the trailer for the next season, which comes out later this month. Now, what's Patreon, you may be wondering? Patreon is a platform where you can support creators like myself to create content that you love with a small monthly contribution. Believe it or not, the price of just one nice coffee or latte a month goes a long way to actually help me to keep creating the show and keep it running. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, you can visit waldorfie.com forward slash Patreon, or you can check out patreon.com forward slash waldorfie. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and those are basically the same page. Another great way to support the show is by following along on social media. You can find Waldorfie at bwaldorfie, that's B-E, Waldorfie, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and I'm definitely the most active on Instagram. Big thanks again to all of you listening in. Be well.